It is February 24, 2000, at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. Hillary Rosen is one of Los Angeles entertainment industry's most powerful women. She heads the Recording Industry Association of America, and she's summoned its board members. She's got some bad news for them. For more than a year, she's been concerned about how Silicon Valley might shake up the music industry. And for the past several months, one upstart has been keeping her awake at night. It's time to tell them why. You know about Napster. We've already sued them, and we're going to win. But it's going to take a while. In the meantime, the media has been all over Napster, and that's just making it more popular by the hour. You need to understand how bad this is. She motions to a staffer, who opens a laptop, downloads the software application called Napster, and registers as a new user. All of this takes less than a minute. The board members raise their eyebrows. They hadn't known how easy it was. Rosen turns to the board. Okay, call out some song titles. Live in La Vida Loca. The song pops up almost instantly. She's into superstitions, black cats and voodoo dolls. Board members exchange glances. They call out songs still reverberating in their heads from last night's Grammy Awards, where they were all riding high. Baby, one more time. The Britney Spears song pops right up. Way too easy. Way too easy. Think of something more obscure or very recent. Bye, bye, bye. The NSYNC tune has only been on the radio for a grand total of three days. It's not even out on CD yet. And boom. There it is. There's a shocked silence as the captains of the music industry stare into the abyss. Until now, they doubted a file-sharing app could threaten them. Rosen lets it sink in before speaking. Millions are listening to music this way. The record chiefs didn't believe people would settle for the poor sound quality of music online. They're stunned at how fast and easy this is. And cheap. One exasperated exec responds with dark humor. Yeah, free is a compelling price point. Another Sony executive responds, Are you sure suing them is enough? In truth, there's little reason to think it will be. For more than a century, record labels have faced challenges from new mediums. But right now, well, this seems very different. It feels like they might be looking at the end. From Wondering, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In 1998, when the music industry was raking in $12 billion a year, Napster was just getting started. When Napster peaked in 2000, so did the industry's revenue, at just shy of $15 billion. But thanks to the upstart, 
the music industry would never be the same. For starters, the labels haven't seen that kind of money since. But thanks to the technology of downloading song files that Napster started, lots of other people and companies outside the labels will get obscenely rich. In our six-part series, Napster vs. the Record Labels, we look at the ultimate disruptor. You're listening to Episode 1, The Beginning of the End. And a warning to listeners, this episode contains adult language. Up until about 2000, people were willing to drive to the record store to spend $18 to $20 on an album that had the one or two songs they wanted to hear. The music industry's power and money was in distribution. Now, with Napster... Distribution was in the hands of anyone with a hard drive willing to share music files. Napster gave the public its first taste of owning their favorite music for free, and it didn't take long for it to become addicted. The takedown of the music industry started with a teenager named Sean Fanning. In 1998, two years before that sobering Beverly Hills board meeting, Fanning is an unsure 17-year-old in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. He's in his bedroom, listening to music on his headphones with the jack plugged into the computer. Sean is doing his two favorite things, programming and rocking out. He prefers both at once. This lets him escape from the outside world, where he's had a rough time. Without his father around, his family hit hard times and moved around a lot. He eventually ended up in a foster home, but now he's back with his family. They're off welfare and living in a middle-class neighborhood. He's new and looking for friends. One of the few places he feels accepted is on the local basketball court. At first, the other kids tease Sean about his short, curly hair. They call it nappy. When they eventually accept him, they affectionately call him Napster. Sean accepts the nickname with pride. When he joins hacking chat rooms online, he takes Napster as his handle. Sean is learning a lot about programming and the still untapped potential of the Internet. But he knows almost nothing about the record titans in New York and Los Angeles, how they fought to get to the top, and how they will do just about anything to stay there. Music execs had fought off new technology and counterfeiters before, and they dueled with Congress over payola, paying DJs to play songs on the radio, and came out just fine. Payola becomes illegal for the record labels, so they just essentially farm it out to promoters and consultants. But around Thanksgiving in 1998, there are signs that anyone can read pointing to radical change for good or ill. It's a sold-out show by the Beastie Boys. The rap trio is playing to their hometown in New York. They're belting out hits like So What You Want, Intergalactic, and Sabotage. The sound is raucous and anti-establishment. But the real rebellion is happening at the mixing board. That's where Ian Rogers is recording it all live. He's a friend of the band and a software engineer. 
After the show, he'll post the recorded music on the Beastie Boys website, where fans can listen for free, and the band's label won't get a dime. This gives people a chance to check out the music. If they like what they hear, they'll buy it. At least, that's the way Rogers sees it. A Capitol Records executive sees it quite differently and calls the band's manager. Hey, where exactly in your contract does it say you can just give away the music we pay for? We're not giving away physical copies. This is more like radio, you know, promotional. You aren't letting anything digital get out there, so we're not competing with you. People can't buy it that way from us or you or anyone else. That's right. And for good reason. See, we can actually sell CDs, but if we put out our own MP3s, anyone can make as many copies as they want. Where's the profit in that? Listen, you gotta understand something. They can make free copies off CDs too, you know. But the point is this, digital is where this is all going. Tell you what, we'll take the risk. How about you take the profits from the CDs and records, let us keep the digital rights, right? We're willing to bet that people would rather pay us over the web than steal the music. The idea is that the band will charge less than consumers would pay for a record, but it will keep all the money from what it sells online instead of settling for a sliver of a retail price for a record after the stores and the label take their cuts. The Beasties aren't the only ones who see promotional value in digital. Rolling Stone magazine makes it obvious to many when it adds a new category to its regular listings of the top-selling music. Most downloaded song. And all the girlies say I'm pretty fly for a white guy. Topping this category one day is Pretty Fly for a White Guy by The Offspring. It sold 8 million record albums, but it was downloaded 22 million times. Most or all of those downloads were unapproved, meaning that no money went directly to the label or the band. But the band figures the promotional value in spreading the song was enormous, and it hadn't cost them anything after all. The group's manager wonders, what if we had been downloaded 40 million times? Would we have sold 16 million records? Offspring frontman Dexter Holland takes to singing Napster's praises from the concert stage and in interviews. I think it's promoting music. Now I realize that it could change. I don't think that all music should be free. or I'm not saying those kinds of things. But right now, there's a reality that because record labels put out CDs that are not coffee protected, they can't expect them to not be on the Internet. And so rather than try to pretend it's not happening, we want to think of a creative way to, uh, to promote the music and do something cool for the fans. While pre-Napster skirmishes are being fought in the courts, the labels figure their best bet for making money off of downloads is to make digital downloads that won't work after being copied. In December 1998, they announced that they're going to create digital watermarks on authorized electronic music files. They'd be designed so that no one could remove the watermarks. It also assumes that electronics makers would make devices that wouldn't play watermarked songs that had not been paid for. Now, if this sounds like an idea hatched by lawyers and executives instead of artists and tech types, <laughs> well, that's because it was. The guys in suits are trying to design something that's close to impossible. The progression of technology just doesn't work this way. 
and the watermarks never happen. While the executives are trying to force the digital genie back into the bottle, MP3s with no restrictions on how they are played are spreading everywhere. And a surprising number of bands want to bite the hand that feeds them. That's because they deeply resent the contracts that deduct the label's vague expenses, including high promotional spending, before the musicians ever get paid. Musicians believe the labels are all about preserving their own dominance in the industry. But with digital music, well, musicians can ditch the label gatekeepers who charge $18 for a CD that costs a buck to make. Bands can sell their own music worldwide for next to nothing. And that, right there, folks, that's what scares the hell out of music execs. Consumers, too, are sick of high CD prices. For a time, record and CD prices are so consistently high that the Federal Trade Commission investigates. It finds the labels have coerced stores to charge high prices for albums by threatening to withhold advertising money if stores lower prices. In May 2000, the FTC charges Universal, Sony, Warner, EMI, and Bertelsmann with violating antitrust laws. The Big Five agree to stop the practice and pay a settlement of more than $100 million. Meanwhile, the Napster Rebellion is gaining momentum. Masses of music lovers and musicians are forming at the gates of the labels, and they're carrying pitchforks. The labels are playing for time as they try to figure out a way to snuff out this uprising or to capitalize on it. The record labels don't know it, but fans are moving on. Internet connections become faster, and this opens up space for more downloading and streaming. Some fans are willing to pay authorized services like one built around software called RealPlayer. Trouble is, they can't get all the songs they want there. RealPlayer starts a new offering and puts a man named Alan Citron in charge of striking a deal with the labels. It is October 1999, and Napster is spreading on campuses like the common cold. Citron figures this is a good time to strike licensing deals with the labels. He's got 88 million users, something they can't ignore. And he's willing to do a deal on practically any terms. Plus, he will play both the good and bad cop. Napster is the stick. If the labels don't deal with him, well, he'll remind them that the fans will just pirate their stuff. And the carrot? They'll have a stake in his company that'll give them skin in the game. So that when they IPO, the stock market will rain money on them. That's the plan, anyway. He goes to meet Al Smith at Sony. Citroen's initial pitch is a lowball. What if we charge 50 cents a song? Smith shakes his head. That would undercut the regular record business, and that's where our real money is. Okay, okay. How about a dollar? Too high. Come on, if you charge that much, there's going to be piracy. Look, I'm trying to create an opening here for you. You should know that we're close to a couple of deals. I don't think you can pull it off. We can, and we're going forward with or without you. Then get out of my office. You won't get any music. Oh, yes, we will. You won't get Ricky Martin. You won't get Mariah Carey. As Citroen walks out, he thinks to himself that the labels 
are their own worst enemies. They don't want to do anything. And the longer they wait, the more they're going to lose to the internet pirates like Napster. Citroen is right. The labels are going to lose big. The labels are also right that Napster is an immediate threat to the recording companies. Technology is changing the industry forever. The question is, who will get crushed by the coming changes? And who will capitalize on them? The Recording Industry Association of America responds to the challenge to its control by dispatching Hillary Rosen to sue those who make it easy for people to share music files. The RIAA can't stop the software that lets computers play MP3s, the most popular format for digital music. But it thinks it sees a way to stop the sales of portable players that allow people to listen to MP3s on the go. So, in 1998... RIAA sues a company called Diamond Multimedia to stop sales of one of the most popular portable players, the Rio. But there's a problematic legal precedent for the labels. See, the movie industry tried and failed to stop the VCR home video recorders. Judges in that case ruled that users could move around shows they had gotten legally, even if the video players also abetted piracy. In 1999, the courts in the Rio case ruled the same way, allowing the portable players to be sold freely. After that, there's no way the law can stop the technology. Apple founder Steve Jobs missed the early surge in digital music. But in 2001, at one of his onstage events, he introduces Apple fans to the future iTunes, Apple's software for liberating music from CDs and letting users rearrange the songs into their own playlist. iTunes commercials even school computer users how to rip the songs off their CDs and then burn them to new CDs. One television ad features a Mac user walking into a concert hall where he is the only member of the audience. On stage are world-famous musicians like Wilco, Barry White, Ziggy Marley, Iggy Pop, and Lil' Kim, right there in the flesh. He tells them whom he wants to hear in what order on his homemade CD. Smash Mouth. What do you want to hear? Can you do All-Star after that? I don't think so. Okay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and Deep Dish, can you do that song that's like... Uh... Yeah, we can do that. that. I'm going to drop the fuck bomb on you. Come <laughs> on, George. Let's slow it down with uh, Amy Mann doing Red Vine. You got it. And Wilco with Misunderstood. All right. And uh, Mr. White. You can call me Barry. How about something for, you know, the ladies? I ain't speaking my language. It's your music burning on a Mac. The ad ends with the words, rip, mix, burn. One label exec who sees the ad says, rip, mix, burn. Might as well be fuck you, record labels. The ad takes the user right up to the edge of what's legal. The labels are apoplectic, especially since iTunes works with MP3s that might have come from somewhere else. 
A dozen years after being fired from the company he founded, Jobs returned in 1997, when the company was about 90 days away from having to file for bankruptcy. He's just starting a journey that will make it the most valuable company in the world. It will be the greatest business comeback ever. The labels fume that Jobs is making pirated digital music far easier to spread. They believe he's profiting at their expense. Apple is even giving such casual criminality an air of savvy and sophistication. But what the labels don't know yet is that for Steve Jobs, this is just the start. In our next episode, the labels are only beginning to feel the pain while Napster is struggling to gain traction. Sean Fanning turns to a relative with a sketchy history for help to turn this novelty into a business. Also entering the picture is Sean Parker, a buddy and teenage hacker that gets the attention of both the FBI and the CIA before he goes on to become a billionaire. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a link on the episode notes. All you have to do is tap or swipe over the cover art. And you'll also see some offers from our sponsors. We hope you can support our show by supporting them. And hey, if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at wondery.com survey. And don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. Just a quick note about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Joseph Men, the author of All the Ray, The Rise and Fall of Sean Fanning's Napster, wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Jenny Lauer is our producer. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondering.